Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter, Built by Scott, and Instagram at King O'Kane, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. If you're in human performance today, you recognize that the industry has changed. Gone are the days of highly focused specialists who live in their isolated lanes, working without the understanding of the whole human being. The world of human performance is about integration today. It's about recognizing what your client needs to do to perform at their highest potential, discovering the parts of the puzzle of performance that need work, while keeping this person moving, training, performing, and succeeding seamlessly. Reconditioning is an operating system for this new world of human performance. The practice honors the role of each specialization and helps define the most powerful and tactical use of interventions that will make a difference. You don't take your car to the garage only when it's broken. You schedule for regular maintenance so that it keeps running smoothly when you need it. The human body is no different and reconditioning professionals are those best prepared to keep the human body running. Check out our courses at ReconditioningHQ.com today. Follow our robust educational programming and become the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. It's been four years that Leave Your Mark has been up and running. And during these four years, uh, we've had a fantastic podcast sponsor in Matrix Fitness. I have to thank Greg Lawler for his commitment to this podcast and his commitment and his team's commitment to what we're trying to do is helping you in the community see and listen to some of the best in the business of human performance. And to talk about the best in the business, well, right back at Matrix Fitness, they are the best in the business at what they do, and they serve uh, the continuum of human performance from the day-to-day person who is looking just to stay fit and, uh, and to aspire to be healthy to the person who wants to be out uh, performing at their best in an athletic endeavor. They have all the equipment that spans that continuum. They're ready to help you, the practitioner, or you, the person who wants to build your at-home facility or a facility or an institutional facility to have success with your clients or with yourself. So I encourage you to take a look at their products. Head over to teamupwithmatrix.ca today and check out what they're doing. They have outstanding equipment and outstanding customer service. So once again, thank you to Matrix for supporting Leave Your Mark and take some time today to check them out. Wow, what's going on at ReconditioningHQ.com these days is insane. Uh, you can find the entire R1 Foundations course online and available to digest at your leisure. The R2 Designs course is right there as well, fully loaded. R3 Collab is a combination of online material all about the neurological system and then a live laboratory where we dive deep on everything reconditioning. These three courses walk you through the process of reconditioning all the information and what we've done now is we've attached to all of this a mastermind community and when you're in the mastermind community it's 20 bucks a month uh, and you have access to weekly meetings that we're going to be doing on case studies 
all kinds of gem material from things that we've done, uh, guest presenters, guest interviews. We have Matt Jordan coming up in a few weeks, Nick Ward from Altus coming in a few weeks as well. So we've got some outstanding people coming as guests in the future. We are basically in that mastermind combining uh, revolving eight-week labs for each of those courses. So they're cycling through. We're going to do eight weeks and take a break to another eight weeks. So if you're in R1 and you want to come in and learn while you're in the mastermind, we have meetings once a week for an hour to go through the material. So it keeps you accountable, allows you to touch base with what you've learned, ask your questions. It really allows you to dive deep on all the information. On top of that, because the world is starting to open up a little bit, we are going to have our first live lab in Montreal, May 14th, 15th for R1 Foundations. And effectively, what we're going to do is when you purchase a course, you have all that material online. You have access to the mastermind and the community material and the community learning. And then you can come with to this meeting on the weekend for two days and just dive deep on how to play with all the information. And so it's not a, a, a teaching lab as much as it is a learning lab, a trying lab, a context lab. And that's what we've got uh, big time for everybody these days. And then on top of that, the International Hockey Performance Summit is pivoted to virtual June 10 to 12. All the powerful content, we have kept it all in there. We've revised the curriculum. You can go online, take a look at it. The SCAF Summit pre-summit is going to be there too. So three days of incredible information is going to be available to you. If you have an interest in hockey performance or foundationally the people People who are speaking at this thing are the top of the world at what they do. So you're going to take away whether it's hockey related or just training and performance related. It's there for you. So come and join us uh, virtually. It's all there for the taking. And then on top of that, if you are interested in ski performance training and you want to learn to train to train uh, or train to compete with your athletes that you're working with off snow, I am doing a ski program, a workshop on April 23rd, 24th in Mont-Tremblant, Quebec. It is also virtual as well. So it's live and virtual. It's a hybrid event. You can jump on that and that's available right now. Going to be dropping the hammer on that April 23rd, 24th. So uh, look forward to having you with us in anything we're doing reconditioning today. Head over to reconditioninghq.com to check out all our offerings. As an avid listener of the Leave Your Mark podcast, I'm sure you recognize the process that I take our guests through in learning about their lives and understanding what it is taken for them to become the professionals and the successes that they've had in their lives and effectively there's a lot of learning that we go through and everybody that I talk to talks about mentorship and influential people in their lives and the podcast has always been my offering to the community at large uh, for you to see and learn from the insights of others. But now what I'm doing is uh, at the beginning of May I am launching the Leave Your Mark Life Lab, and this is going to be my stewardship process for helping you become the professional you want to be through mentorship, through reflection, through directed conversation, giving you skills, providing accountability, 
and talking about your progress and inside a group of people who are all trying to do the same thing, providing you with a, a lens uh, of, of reflection on yourself and the things that you want to accomplish and recognize that you need to put as much into yourself as you do into others. And this industry is crazy when it comes to us taking care of everybody else but not taking care of ourselves. So I want to change that. That's what the LYM Life Lab is all about. I encourage you to head over to the Leave Your Mark website, which is lymlab.com. Check out what we're offering in the LYM Life Lab section. You can also download two free videos that I created that are a starter kit to this process and looking at creating change in your life. And I would be remiss if I didn't say, hey, grab yourself a hat while you're there because Leave Your Mark hats are sick lids if I do say so myself. And lastly, I want to uh, invite you to check out the latest episodes and please take the time to go over and leave a comment, leave a rating on your favorite streaming service because it helps us get out to more people. So without further ado, let's get on to the podcast. Welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston. This is a performance hot stove on return to performance recorded at the 2022 International Hockey Performance Summit. Enjoy. Welcome to the hot stove. This is on return to performance. We have an excellent panel of professionals here with us. Um, Matty Price from the LA Kings, um, Mike Potenza from the San Jose Sharks, and Peter Friesen from La La Land. And I love Peter Friesen in La La Land. That's where he loves to live. Um, Pete Friesen, uh, illustrious career uh, with the Carolina Hurricanes, now as a professor and uh overreaching steward of uh, the grand affairs of life. And uh, we've also got some good people in the room too, that uh, are doing um, some good things in hockey. So, you know, I want to encourage everybody. This is a hot stove. It's for you guys to have the opportunity to ask questions. Jamie remarked to me yesterday, uh, and I agree with her, that uh, we're surprised that most of you leave your video off in a hot stove. You might want to just open up and be present and connect with the group and stuff because it is supposed to be an intimate surrounding. But I know you're shy, and some of you want don't want to be seen, so that's okay. Um so we're going to go around. Uh, this is obviously on return to performance. And, uh, you know, Matt set the table yesterday. So I'm going to go to Matt first um, and just kind of ask a, a, an overreaching question around this subject matter. And that is that, you know, I think most of the people in the industry sort of agree with the, you know, the front end of of a rehab process. If we break it into those three blocks of, you know, your initial dealing with the injury, then you've got sort of that mid-stage phase and that end-stage phase when we're trying to decide, you know, what is this person got to do to be prepared? What are they missing to be prepared? How are we objectively deciding whether we should be putting them back on the ice or into practice, what have you? And I know you shared a lot of your insights, but if you can distill down to some of the big rocks, what do you feel are some of the things that we need to pay more attention to or uh, connect to or recognize as we're making that that sort of third stage come to fruition? Yeah, Um I guess as we go through all those phases, there's, there's going to be different definitions of 
what's probably important, what we would define as functional at each stage, right? Um, so I guess with our process, there's a lot of, of uh, sort of ongoing assessment, um, subjective and objective. We're looking at, uh, like I said, various levels of function, but of course structure as well. Um, so if we're talking about a lower limb injury, um, there's going to be some some basic tracking of tissue return if there was any atrophy. Uh, um, you know, I don't think at any stage we're looking for perfection. So assuming we have some baseline data, I don't, I don't think we need perfection to move on to the next step. I think we need, um, we need really good in a lot of cases. Um, and then, uh, as, as we get closer to having an athlete return, there's probably a little bit more, uh, uh, critique in terms of how much we've got them, um, to a baseline stage. But, um, you know, I think uh, just to throw out a couple of ideas, of course, we're going to look at uh, the tissue. We use a DEXA scan for that. Um, we've started to dabble with MRI. There's a really cool program. It's, it's obviously pretty advanced and, and expensive, but um, MRI, MRIing uh, lower limbs and looking at uh, specific muscle volumes. Um, so instead of just the gross limb, we're looking at, at more detailed information with certain tissue. Um, we look at things like groin bar and Nord board. We're going to look at, um, probably jumps on a force plate. How are we working in, in, uh, something more athletic? And of course, then tracking out, uh, on the ice and, and monitoring some of the, the function there. And so again, as we, as we move along that spectrum, we're kind of checking the boxes and making sure that it looks really good, not perfect. Mm, beautiful. Mike, uh, Pete, do you guys have any other thoughts on that subject before I pivot? Uh, but I wanted to set the table. Uh, you know, the only thing that I, I take into consideration a lot of times, because uh, when I was with the Hurricanes, and even now, like, I, I'm the strength coach and also the rehab guy, and so I was able to, you know, gleam a lot of information of that over 21 years in the NHL, but uh, I, I agree with Matty saying uh, tissue healing timelines is absolutely critical that we keep that into consideration. And especially as I've seen uh, surgeries evolve, uh, they do, they're doing more and more with less tissue damage, but they still uh, require, you know, most shoulders are scoped now, hernias are scoped. And so uh, the hip replacements are the, like, all of those things are, are minimized, uh, but yet they still need the, the tissue healing timelines also to, I think that I, the problem I see a lot of times with, and this may be uh, jumping topics, but you know, there is a reason for protocols, why doctors have protocols and it's absolutely essential. We kind of follow those uh, protocols, but also, and that's what you can't do. And there's a reason why they can't do it, but also to, to marry that with what they can do. Uh, so yeah, that, that's it uh, sort of thing. Um, that's all I want to add. Yeah, no, that's a great point, Pete. And uh, Mike, your thoughts on that area. Um, <clears throat> Maddie touched on a lot of the same similar things that we utilize to kind of track. I think, I think what is really most important for us is bringing them back to that range of motion that may be improved or, or available range of motion that they had prior. So that's really big for us. It, it opens up the gateway to do things explosively and to reduce force and, and um, make quick changes directions and be agile, obviously. But if we go, if we come out of that early stage rehab and don't have that, but yet we force it on the performance side, then he may get back to, to play or the athlete may get back to play, but you may, you're going to run some, some other issues down the road and it's going to be worse. One of the things that I really enjoy about the whole process is the end stage where I can take them on the ice and get them up to speed. Like I said, um, on Friday, 
with our development coach, Mike Ricci and kind of just, you know, spitballing ideas and seeing what we can, what kind of drills we can create. Um, I become a video guy really because I'm videoing them on every single session that they go through because their skating quality early on is, is not great. It's trash. So when we show the athlete like, Hey, you cross over great to one side, but when you cross over to that affected side, you, you, you're delayed, right? You don't want to spend time on that leg if it's a lower body injury and whatnot. So, so we do show them, we've gotten a little bit into the moxie monitor um, to look at uh, any recovery uh, differential between the leg and, and kind of find out where that process is, but it's, it's been pretty helpful. Mm-hmm. Pete mentioned uh, the idea of protocols and obviously if there's a surgical situation uh, that we're dealing with and maybe we can bifurcate on that a little bit, but you know, there are these tissue healing and, and defined protocols that a lot of surgeons come with, but at the same time, uh, and I want to, I just want to play devil's advocate here and get some thoughts from you, Pete, and from the rest of the guys, it's just, you know, you certain surgeons have, certain protocols if we get into an acl sort of concept we have different surgical um you know surgeries that people are using which come with another definitive protocol associated with it so and then you get the constraints of the surgeons you know conservative uh mindset around protocol versus our you know potential liberal mindset around trying to move the athlete forward and get them back so what is what were some of your ways of dealing with the those constraints around uh say an acl uh, reconstruction or or a hip uh, repair or what have you that came with a a relative sense of uh, of structure but maybe was a a little bit conservative in its in its uh, expression uh one, I find that what I was lucky enough to do is I always had a strong relationship with my doctors. And as a matter of fact, even now that I'm no longer in the NHL, two of my best friends were my orthopods throughout those 21 years. So that's a big deal. I think you, just like your athletes and stuff, you have to have a relationship with them so you can openly discuss these issues. I remember, and Jordan Stahl has allowed me to talk about this, but he had a Weber C fracture dislocation of his ankle, uh, you know, several years back, but maybe six years back. But anyways, uh, that was a big deal because uh, if you've ever treated a Weber C fracture, that's a very highly unstable fracture. No one's ever come back to that within a year of uh, in the the same professional year uh, season. So anyways, uh, uh, that, that was kind of disheartening because I didn't have any, uh, uh, you know, protocol to follow to get this guy back to playing. Anyways, uh, uh, I was in on surgery and I had a good relationship with the orthopod that I told you. We actually discussed that at the time of the surgery where to place that button string that actually ties the mortise together because he wasn't really familiar with the hockey boot. And so we actually discussed the orientation of that button, which would have led to a lot of problems uh, sort of thing. But anyways, he was very very accepting of my uh, comments on the hockey boot and that uh, Weber C fracture and the appliance that he had to apply or uh, put into Jordan. Anyways, my point being is that I think that if you have, that's a learning process for them. I remember when I first came down to Raleigh, I actually had to teach every EMT how to walk on ice. They'd never done a spinal on ice. But the thing is, the more education stuff you get, you're going to learn, they're going to learn from you as well. And so that's when I get, I think, yep, it's a win-win situation. Mm-hmm. long-winded answer no it's beautiful mike uh, your thoughts maybe from uh from that perspective and in, in your experiences over the years with you know the protocol that everybody's kind of uh, be speaking but then maybe you're in the gym and on the ice and you're noticing the athletes maybe ahead of schedule or behind schedule how do you, you broker that conversation 
Um, let me start off by saying, you know, when we, the, the, you know, that dinner, dinner will be ready when, you know, the smoke alarms go off. And that's kind of what I say to everybody about my, uh, my return to play protocol. Like, don't expect this guy back anytime soon. We're going to overcook this guy, you know? So if he's ready this week, I'm giving him a whole nother week. And just to be sure, um, I think that makes the most sense. Um, it, it never came back to bite me in the ass. So I'm undefeated in that respect, you know, but I think you will see, you will see things become problematic if you force the guy back. Right. Mm-hmm. And look, if it's, if it's the playoff and it's game seven, then you do what you got to do. Right. You know, the motivation from the athletes is, is immeasurable and, and you just run with it. Right. Um, but with our, I was, we had a um, orthopedic team when I first came in to San Jose and they probably were here for my first 10 years and they were great. He, you know, um, Dr. Arthur Ting supported anything that myself and Ray Tufts wanted to do from an early stage rehab and get them moving and not immobilize them and shut them down for eight to 10 weeks in which is kind of suicide. Right. Um, so, but we were safe. We learned a lot from a guy named Bill Knowles. And if nobody knows who that is, you got to take some time to find a video and just listen to Bill Knowles and his early stage protocols and, and what he does for range of motion. And um, he's, he's, he's well-spoken. He's internationally known. Um, he just returned from a, a orthopedic surgeon conference in France uh, to talk about um, his rehab protocols. And it, it's, he's great. So he's really helped revolutionize what we do from early stage rehab standpoint. Now, fast forward, you know, the last five years, we've had a hospital system local to the Bay Area um, become our orthopedic group. Um, they're very, very conservative. Um, this is kind of their first go around with team sports, especially hockey. So there's a lot of education and kind of telling them where we're at and what we've had success with. And it's it's difficult at times, I'm not going to lie, to 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 them to trust us in what we what we what we're doing and what we have success with but we really had a have had a chance to um to prove it to them and and they they appreciate that but they still wanted to monitor it and we're going to respect that obviously because they're the surgeons um but <clears throat> but there's really been no no pushback um since and then when it comes to on ice um you know the there's different stages. I think, I think we, we, when we talk about high performance models and and who should be at the top and who should get the credit and who more importantly should clear the person like that one unified voice, it can be multiple voices, you know, like I think if I'm a medically like clear the medically, that doesn't mean they, that the medical clearance person is clearing them to play the game, you know, like, so for us, like Ray Tufts clears them medically and then Mike Potenza clears them for practice and performance and then at the end of it, it's the head coach who says, all right, like he can go in the lineup. I think we get, you know, in a pissing match to see who ha- gets to the, the, gets the authority to say it, but it, it's everybody's own area where their authority should exist. And then you go from there. You can't have a medical guy saying he's ready to play when he's getting nowhere near the, um, the fitness level or performance level or, or reaching your uh, benchmarks or KPIs in the gym. He can't say he can't say that because he doesn't see what we do, you know. So that's just my rant. Sorry, sorry for the soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful soapbox. Um, Joe uh, Sawicki just asked. Uh, we've talked about long-term rehab, but about uh, the, does this process work with the short-term injuries and those that an athlete could play through muscle contusion or tendonitis, as an example? I mean, 
You know, Matt, what have you um, sort of explored, you know, with your medical team in terms of how you supplement, manage? So you got a player who's dealing with a sort of a, you know, a niggly groin thing is still trying to play, but he needs, you know, supplementary work. He needs to keep sort of pseudo rehabbing at the same time. How are you dancing that dance? Yeah, those are, those are tricky, but, um, I guess it depends whether they're, if they're going to continue to skate and practice, if there's been no interruption to their, their normal schedule, then I think it's just a, a medical maintenance issue. Um, of course, if it elevates to the level of, um, uh, being shut down in any capacity or missing sessions or having to manage on ice load for that, for that matter, then of course it's a, it's a little bit more involved. Um, and, uh, you know, then, then the, the strength and conditioning staff and the, the medical staff are, are trying to come together each day to make sure that a we're supporting the healing process and b maintaining, um, other areas of function so that when they do get the green light to go back on the ice, they're, they're kind of up and running. So I don't think it's super complicated. It's just making sure that, um, that again, I think communication is key. I think Mike, Mike touched on it. Of course, there's, there's no, uh, there's no fighting over who's saying what it's just a, here's what we know. Here's what, uh, you know, and how can we pull this together to, to come up with a good solution on any given day? Mm. Pete, when you, you look at, um, back at the work that you did and then also, um, you know, the way you, you work today, um, and you have those recurrent, you know, you've got those recurrent groin injuries or the the ab things that guys are dealing with. And when do you sort of, because you used to wear both hats in essence, and I'm not sure everybody knows that about your career, but you kind of worked in both spaces. But how did you sort of reinvent the process when, let's say, guy gro- pulls a groin at the beginning of the season, they, you know, you nurse it through, he's back playing. Uh, and then, you know, just before Christmas, he pulls it again, you kind of nurse him through. And now you're in February and he starts to, it starts to bother him again. When do you sort of go, okay, we've got to take a longer runway approach to this, or we got to change the way we're operating on this? Like, how have you negotiated that type of injury in the past? Uh, I think, uh, Scotty, what, what, and especially as I got older uh, or more uh, experience, uh, I, I realized the importance of uh, staying on corrective programming. Uh, and so that's one, I did both. So I, I was on the corrective programming, but that's where, you know, the strength coach can really help the trainer out in the fact that, you know, if you have a hamstring or groin, uh, those, as we know, even an ACL, uh, you know, they, they come back if you don't care take care of them. So I think honestly, educating the athlete, how important it is to maintain that. And, um, uh, somebody played a great video on the first day about time and how, you know, honestly, a groin can take your whole season away from you. Uh, you know, your productivity, uh, goals scored, your, your whole career could take a sort of a a change if you don't take care of your body. And you got to impress upon the, uh, fact, uh, that, that, that is that important. And also I'm a big proponent of self-efficacy. I got to educate that athlete. So that athlete gets in earlier, uh, to do his, uh, uh, corrective exercises or to stay later for recovery and stuff like that. And if you can uh, apply to their, you know, their career, what's valuable to them, their why, uh, I got success with it, uh, to be honest with you. And, but that's a brilliant question because starting out, I didn't give a shit. Once that guy passed my test and, and the coach was taken over, but then all of a sudden you read the literature, ACLs, there's 55% of people. I don't think come back to pro sports after an ACL. That's amazing. Groins are terrible. 
uh, to be honest. I think they're, I also kind of ex- describe it like cancer. It'll grow if you feed it. You know what I mean? All of a sudden you've got a groin. Now you've got a sports or, or a, you know, an adductor problem or a groin problem or a uh, pelvic problem. So yeah, that's, that's what I do. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm interested. I'm going to pivot back to, or did, did you have somebody else have a comment there? I don't know if I heard, no. Um, I'm going to come back to Mike on the same sort of topic, but um, sort of a different angle is, you know, when you, when you look at these injuries that happen, there's, there's often if, if it wasn't an on ice mechanism and you, you've got these kind of chronic recurrence or you've got a thing that, you know, somebody tore an ACL, but you didn't really have a, you know, big classic mechanism. Have you, do you guys go back at the end of the season and kind of look at causal dynamics and or during the season and say, you know what, we've got to, we've got to look at how this guy moves and start cleaning up X, Y, Z, because otherwise that's going to come back and sting us. And, and if so, how, how have you approached that with the player or with the circumstances? Yeah, you very much got to look at, you know, do maybe do a deeper dive into your, into your data, you know, like the range of motion data, maybe some of the performance data, is there a discrepancy asymmetrically that maybe you didn't, you didn't catch or, or, you know, those become vital. I think we want to do, you know, we want to do jumping, you know, and force plate work in a bilateral position, but at the same time, like you do have to take some time to look at asymmetrical jumping landing, you know, in, in multi-planes. Right. So you can look back at that. You, you see if there's something kind of rears its ugly head there, and then you can, you can address both in the range of motion side and the performance side. Um, you know, a, a big thing is that you gotta, you just gotta keep an eye on the trends. We always look at, even with concussions is like, okay, why is this occurring? Is, is the player, we do a cervical range of motion, um, testing for everybody right um early on with our kind of range of motion battery so is that player player who's getting concussions or if we're seeing a lot of them putting himself in a bad position does he lack range of motion you know to one particular side so he can't kind of turn and see what's coming at him um is his does he have forward head posture and whatnot that puts casts him out and puts him in a vulnerable position and where he's weak as well um so yeah scotty you do look at even even with non- um, even with um, non-contact injuries, right? I think that's the ones sometimes as performance coaches are like, oh, I got hit, you got hurt. Like it's not, you were okay. You know, it's a, it's the hamstring pull going up the ice or the, the groin pull sprinting up the ice with nobody around them that, that we feel like we want to, you know, go into a quiet room and with a bottle of bourbon and drink our sorrows away. <laughs> but um, those are the ones that you, those are the ones that keep you up at night. But um yeah, so that, that's kind of my two cents on that. Maddie, I, I loved your line yesterday. You, you, you don't want a hand injury to turn into a groin injury. And I'm just kind of, you know, maybe you can give some some uh, nuggets around when you're going back on the ice and you've got, uh, you know, how are you looking at the quality of the of the skating sort of pre and post and recognizing that somebody is biasing their skating based on that injury and and how do you maybe take a step back or work with uh, somebody like Craig uh, Johnson, who's your skating guy or other guys that you're working with to sort of work on the me- mechanics side of things and make sure that whatever it is that they're dealing with doesn't become a, another type of injury or another problem. Quick break here. We'll be back with our guest in just a moment. We've been lucky at Leave Your Mark since the very beginning almost that Matrix Fitness has come on as our main sponsor and they remain steadfast to this program because they know how it serves the community at large the same way they serve the human performance community as well. And 
basically, if you need something in the world of human performance, whether it's to build a performance facility or training facility or fitness facility, whether it's a home facility you're trying to build or a hybrid facility out of the garage to work with clients, it doesn't really matter what the actual goal is. They have a product for you. They have the equipment and they have the service capacity to make sure that you're getting what you need when you need it for what you need it for. And that's the key is they are a full service organization. They are worldwide. They are one of the biggest Uh, equipment manufacturers in the world for human performance and they remain dedicated to bringing great products every day to you the consumer so that you can do what it is you need to do which is take care of your clients and or take care of yourself i encourage you to go over to team up with matrix.ca and check out their products today ask them the questions you need answers to and they will do their best to take care of you Thanks again, Matrix, for taking care of LYM. Do you struggle with finding the reason why your client keeps coming back to you with the same injury problem or why your client that you're training is having limitations in their performance? Do you find yourself challenged with how to progress the exercises that you're going to do or regress them or understand what actually is going on with their movement and what may need to be tweaked or changed or cleaned up so that they can function more appropriately and perform better? Do you find it challenging sometimes to work in or with other practitioners and professionals so that you can create a solution for the clients or the team or the organization that you're with? Well, reconditioning is all about providing you with an operating system for navigating those environments and those situations. It is a fundamental process that scripts and brings together the worlds of therapy and performance in uh, a way that no one else is really doing. It brings together applied neurology, the foundation of uh, why we move and how we move, and gives you the tools to make the changes and understand where you can take your tool set and be more tactical with it and get greater intervention Uh, outcomes and better outcomes in general for your athletes and for your clients in general. So this is not just a system for athletes. It's a system for every human being. And we also believe that every human being is some form of athlete. So we need to look at the human being, what it is that the human wants to do and take care of business when it comes to getting them prepared to do what they want to do. So if you're interested in upgrading your professional practice, run over to reconditioninghq.com today and take a look at our offerings. Uh, We have a beautiful course curriculum and program that takes you from point A to point Z or Z if you like Z better than Z and helps you take care of uh, all the people that you need to take care of on a daily basis. A reminder that the doors are open for application to the LYM Life Lab that begins right at the start of May, and this month we'll be taking applications, sorting out who's going to be a part of this program. We want people who are dedicated to self-reflection and growth and contribution and want to make a change in their world and be the best they can be. 
I suggest you head over to lymlab.com today. Check out the program on the LYM Life Lab page. If you want to, there are two free downloads there that you can jump on. Um, just to get you started with instigating change in your world and uh, working on your mindset and other skills that we're going to be dumping into and having a lot of fun with in the program. There's a lot to it. Uh, if you read the fine print, so to speak, on that page, the Leave Your Mark Life Lab page, you'll see some of the different things that you're going to be learning, the things we're going to be doing, and how we're going to operate through this next year. I want to uh, invite anybody who wants to instigate change in their lives and create the best situation for themselves under the guidance of mentorship and community. Jump on it today, uh, head over there and apply. And if you've got any questions, just feel free to PM me. Take care. We're back. Enjoy the podcast. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we're that well oiled, but you know, again, the key for us is that like skating load to me, and this is just sort of a, an educational evolution for me as we started to track things and just understanding how much skating and how much work they're doing on the ice and, and how that affects you know, the risk of injury down the road. I also said that skating vaccinates the hips and we know that too much skating is, is bad for your, your joints over time. But at the same time, just that, that basic skating load is such a powerful, uh, stimulus to, to, uh, protect the, the soft tissues around the hip, the, the groins and hip flexors and hamstrings. So, um, we're going to watch skating quality. We're going to look at asymmetries, um, uh, I think stepping back, we have to understand what they, again, what would their sort of baseline stride look like? Um, just have a feel for it. We're not, we're not going into crazy 3d motion capture, uh, type of analysis, but, um, remember skating is inherently asymmetrical and, uh, a lot of it has to do with where they're holding their stick. Okay. So if I, if I drew a chart of, of skating asymmetry, it, it pretty much exactly lines up with what hand they are. Um, and again, just following that along is, is if we do have a lower limb injury, then um, is it exasperating or is it actually uh, mitigating that that asymmetry? So there's there's a little bit of that that goes on. Um, and again, it's a lot of it's just uh, subjective observation. So like you said, we got CJ on the ice. They've, we've got me. We, we're looking at things. We're talking to the athlete. How does it feel when you go this way? How does it feel when you go that way? So. I guess it's not as uh, scientific as it might sound sometimes, but uh, to your point, there's a lot of a lot of observation and monitoring that goes on. And and just to go back on Pete's comments, like I think the the groin injury is is sort of that that big one. Like Mike said, you can kind of go down a dark hole when they happen in the non-contact groin injuries. And daily maintenance is so huge. I mean, we, we literally do something every day for that area of the body. Um, you know, the, the hips and the shoulders. Um, and they don't happen very often. Like I used to play in the nineties and early two thousands. I felt like I had a groin strain once a week, you know, this year we had two athletes with a groin strain. It, it's down to like a couple per year. And I think just the, the community at large has done such a good job of, of sort of resolving a lot of this and, and understanding where risk factors are and, and intervening. And, and it's, it's such a different game. Now I, I have athletes who've never had a, they don't know what it is. I mean, that was just a, a, like I said, almost a daily occurrence back in in the nineties, but now athletes, it's just, it's so much better. I was just wondering if I can sort of, um, 
come off the back of that with you and stay with you for a second. But what is I'm interested in with all the loading, um, you know, man or monitoring you've been doing over the last few years have you ever noticed or seen or even been able to attribute an injury to potentially a fatigue state that the athlete's been in or or a fatigue state of of a particular group of players who are maybe getting injured i don't know that's something from a trend dynamic you've noticed at all yeah i think so um i guess a couple things we see is it all comes back to uh how prepared the athlete is so are they coming into camp and have they done the correct work? So if let's say we do the groin bar stuff, we can see someone clearly didn't address uh, frontal plane work and adductors are, are really weak compared to the hip abductors. Um, or they didn't do enough skating. We still got guys who kind of don't do a ton of skating and they'll get going in camp. Believe it or not, that still exists. Um, try like you might coaches are still going to blast players in the first few days of training camp. Like uh, pots worked with my head coach, uh, Todd likes to have the first three days are off the charts. Okay. It's, it's a ton of work. So if you're not ready for essentially the the biggest three days of the year on day one, two, and three, you're going to have groin tightness. So to go back to your question around the fatigue pattern, um, everyone's going to get tired. I guess it's what's underlying and can it, can it be resilient in a fatigue state? Um, the athletes that are red flags that end up fatigued, commonly then end up with a strain of course we need some inciting event something bad has to happen a misstep a misstride a, a something got knocked out of position in, in some sort of competitive situation but yes i think athletes that are sort of quote-unquote red flags tend to uh, present with groin pain groin strain um, often in fatigue states for sure mm. Mike, do you guys do, uh, and, and anybody else chime in? I, I would imagine it's become kind of um, par for the course, but doing some, the Don Dudley had asked who works for Buffalo if uh, people are doing pre-screening or movement screening in, in training camp, and are you, you know, looking at red flags and then saying, hey, <coughs> we need to do supplementary work with this guy, or this guy may not be, maybe gear 10 is not where he should be at right now until we get this cleaned up, or are we at that level now where we're kind of red flagging players and, and talking about it, or, or are we just uh, red flagging and then letting them rock and roll and seeing what happens? We're kind of, kind of led, we're red flagging, but, a, you know, per, um, presenting an intervention in the gym or away from the gym that will address range of motion. And, and like I said, around the hip and the groin, the pelvis and, and whatnot, I, I don't do enough of strength ratios for ab and adduction. And, and I, I, I know I should, and, and I want to work it into our program. I think it's very wise. Um, whether we use Kenga tech or whether we go with groin bar, that's still yet to be determined, but I think it is important. I think it could be important for, for any, um, bodily segment. So, um, I think Scotty, I think one of the benefits of our, at least our team is that, um, we have a lot of guys come back the first week of August and then every week it just builds and builds and builds. And, and for those who don't come back and they come back the week prior to, to camp, I always tell them like, listen, like there's no dip in the toe in the water when, on that first day, like you, you have to be ready. I'll send you the conditioning program, kind of like the five week prep program that I give our captain. And, and he just takes the guys through it when I, when I can't be out there yelling at him from the bench. So that's, I, that's what I've done over the years. And it's been knock on wood successful along with the strategy that Pete mentioned, where 
you know, we take time to warm up. I'm, I'm kind of a pain in the ass about making sure you get up here and, and do a pretty extensive and comprehensive type of warm up. And I, I think we've stayed out of the, 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 you know, the, the rash of groin injuries, um, in a good way because of those types of things. Um, but, but you're right. You have to, like Maddie said, you have to, they have to come in tolerating a lot of load speed, change of direction, um, the stress of it. And there hasn't been a coach yet that I've worked with that, um, that hasn't just come gas pedal ready, like tires are revving, smoking, like they're going. And so that was kind of my communication to all the players to make sure that we'll be able to tolerate that, you know? Mm-hmm. Pete, we had a, a question about the, um, the idea of the um, on ice recovery component of a concussion, but maybe, you know, with your experience, obviously you've dealt with lots of concussions over your career and seen the changes in the way that they're managed. So at this time, kind of, Walk us through a little bit in terms of the the way concussions are managed today and how you're making decisions when they get to back back to ice, how they're going to be um, sort of mitigated or managed as they're returning. Actually, that's a, a good segue into uh, what I'm going to be presenting on after this. So I'm going to answer that uh, more thoroughly uh, in my lecture because, to be honest with you, I think with concussions – like when I started in the game, uh, we, we just said, you know, you know, did you buy the food? You know, there's ringing in the guy's ears. Uh, stop, you can come back when the ringing stops, uh, you know, or hearing footsteps. You guys have heard of all this stuff. You know, we're kind of making fun of a person that's hearing footsteps, but actually it was their mind. Uh, their head that was traumatized. And that's why they did, you know, they were losing peripheral vision. And so they would start getting hesitant, especially going in the corners. So, you know, that's a little historical perspective, how we used to uh, treat concussions. Then, uh, you know, it's like everything we do, right? Uh, Ben Johnson proved without a doubt, taking lots of steroids makes you bigger, stronger, faster. Well, with concussions, we went the exact, we thought, okay, rest is important. So we're going to just give you the cocoon uh, therapy. And so that meant just doing absolutely nothing. Now we find that's negligent. You, you have to, you can rehab concussions and it starts right almost as soon as it happens until they return to uh, play. But uh, yeah, that, that's, but I'm going to touch on that more as uh, goes on, because I think that brain mapping, uh, we realized that the, the concussion affects a lot more uh, of the brain than what we just thought it was, like just in the area. All the connections throughout the brain are affected. So we have to do a good job to instill those qualities that might be affected, uh, vision, balance, whatever it might be, motor uh, response, uh, sensory. Those have to be all checked before you put somebody back into a game. I'm not saying that, you you know, they can't get back on the ice and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, uh, so there was a good thing that came out of concussions. We started mapping the brain far better and learned how to train the brain far better. Mm, nice. This one might be for you, Maddie, because I know you mentioned it earlier. But question for anyone using the Nord board. Are you looking for relative strength in relation to body weight in addition to asymmetry data? If so, what is the threshold of strength that you are looking to hit? Yeah. So, uh, just to be transparent, our, our, uh, PTs do all the groin bar and Nord board work. Um, and so the, the exact absolute values I'm not super familiar with. I know we look a lot at the ratios, like ratios are going to be the, the big takeaway. Um, but I think specifically with Nord board was one that I, I talked to them about moving more to a relative score because we're getting, uh, reports with, uh, you know, the big strong guys are putting up 650, 700 Newtons on their hamstrings. And, um, 
they were sort of being ranked at the top of the list. And of course, little guys just simply can't produce those same forces. So I think you're right. It's definitely more valuable to look at a relative score in the, the Nord board specifically. Um, groin bar, I don't remember threshold values off the top of my head. But again, what we were finding is it was like 90% of the group you're fine with. The, the adductor-abduction ratio was really, really good. Actually, really strong groins in most hockey players. Um, but there's always that one or two, you know, so two, one or two per 10 that uh, were dramatically weaker than the rest of the group and huge, huge red flags. So um, in that one, it's again, I think it's ratios that we're primarily looking at, but uh, to answer your question, I would go relative on the Nord board. Cool. Does anybody else have a question from the plenary? I want to, I just want to sort of not to dominate the cues from a verbal perspective. You can certainly write them in, in the chat, but if you've, if you want to open a mic or put your hand up, feel free. This is really an open form form. It's not supposed to be the Scotty ask question show if, uh, if you guys have them. So Scotty, I do want to add one point to, yeah, to Maddie. Um, you, it doesn't surprise me that I, I, sometimes I think it's like, okay, every hockey player and we think every hockey player has a weak groin, right? Um, when in essence, they really don't, they maybe have overactive hip abductors and hip extensors, right? At least that we've found. So the tissues get so tight and taut on that backside that maybe they're just pulling back on kind of the anterior side of the groin. So maybe a release on that lateral side could help that groin just relax back into place and not be kind of pre-stretched or have tension on it automatically. At least that's, we, we, we kind of theorize and with RPT and, and do a lot of soft tissue work on that side to relax those, those muscles that are overpowering it. Those muscles are going to be powerful anyway, you know, to abduct and, and hip extend. But I say, you know, don't just, don't just try to bring the groin up from a groin strengthening standpoint, but we'll look at what you can shut off more so and not have so much tension. And I think you'll have success there. At least I know that I know that we have had. Hmm. Pete, how did you manage? Um, and uh, love to hear the other guys' viewpoints on this, but when you had somebody got injured late in the season, went back home to do, you know, a predominant majority of the rehab and you're, you're coming, they're coming back to you now and you, you're sort of trying to kick the tires and know whether they're, you know, prepared to go to training camp or prepared to, you know, what, what, what have, what's the junk that's left for you to do? How did you manage that? Did you try to get guys in early? Did you have a set, a set of testing protocols you would do to sort of clear them before you would even let them get into training camp? How, how did you manage that? Uh, uh, can you hear me? I'm sorry. Um, you're good. Yeah, we hear you. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, a lot of good conversations, you know, with uh, their trainers. Uh, most of those people had their their strength coaches, uh, trainers. Uh, they were followed up by doctors. So uh, I learned a ton, uh, you know, whether it was Finland, Sweden, or wherever they might be coming from. Uh, I, I learned uh, that what they were doing and to see if it was up to the standards that, that uh, we would have here if they were staying here. Because, yeah, that's a tough one, uh, to be honest with you, is that uh, once they leave for their – like now I think they have to stick around for – a you know, I don't know, a month or two. Uh, but uh, it, when you lose control of those guys, uh, they might be telling you all the right things. But uh, again, you, you know, seeing is believing. And everybody, every athlete I'd ever talked to in the summertime, they were either going to the gym or coming back from the gym, which was probably all bullshit. Uh, but th that's what they would tell me. They'd learn to tell a good story. Uh, so again, uh, they would have to pass our tests. Uh, we would, uh, I, I used to, again, I, 
I'd run our on-ice practices too, as well as our off-ice practices. And so, you know, usually you can pick up uh, on uh, their skill uh, if that part is completely uh, healed or not. And then obviously they'd have to go through our metrics too. So, um, you know, one time a, a psychologist uh, told me is that, you know, he said, Pete, uh, I can actually tell you when that athlete's uh, ready for uh, uh, to go back into a game or a practice. I'm, wow, shit, I want to hear this. And because, you know, is he going to MVO2 or strength or whatever, vertical jump? But he went on to uh, give me great detail or vividly describe, you know, uh, a hit in hockey in the corners with, you know, each person maybe skating 28 miles an hour and to take a hit from behind. Are you still? And he said, from the response they'd give me, I could tell you within a within 1% whether they're uh, ready to go back into the game. I, that's kind of interesting. That's his perspective, right? Uh, we need something more to hang our hat on. But I'm just telling you something. You know, those people, hey, I think that Mike actually said that. They're going to tell you when they're ready, uh, to be honest. Unless they're like they're foolish. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's all I would do. That's my uh, tips over the summer. Keep in contact with them. Develop the relationships with the people that are actually working with them. Nice. Um, Maddie, um, you know, I talked in my case study about a, a great project that the two of us worked on together. Just curious if you can provide some perspective to people when somebody's returning to ice, what have been sort of your incremental loading profiles that you kind of look at, like they haven't been on the ice for X number of months and they're going to start, you know, how do you determine this, this amount of volume or this amount of time on the ice is enough. And then you can move to the next threshold. Have you developed a process for that or a thought, uh, thought paradigm around that uh, with the different projects that you've done to date? Yeah. Again, I guess, depending on the injury type, right? Like if it's, if it's lower body, um, and that's going to be affected by skating, that's going to be a, a pretty tightly managed, uh, progression. Whereas if it's an upper body or even like in Gabe's situation, maybe it's a little bit more of a feeling out process. But if we assume a lower body injury, like I, I touched on yesterday is just kind of trying to come up with these benchmark events. So even if you don't have technology, you, you understand a light skate versus a hard skate versus a lot of skating versus whatever. Um, we use sort of morning skate as an initial benchmark. So some percentage of a morning skate, it might be a quarter of that, or it might be 50% of that, um, building up to a full morning skate. Um, we're, we're always interspersing days off. So we want to try that first day on. Was there any negative reaction? How did you feel? Was there any swelling? Blah, blah, blah okay, we're good to go again. We're going to do, you know, consecutive days. Um, and we're just building towards the next benchmark. So across the first week, we may get to um, almost a practice load worth of work in a single day. Um, and we've experienced three sessions in a row. Um, so again, it, not getting into exact numbers, the, the linear progression sort of is always working towards a benchmark event. Um, we're always just seeing if the, if the injury itself is responding correctly. Um, and like you said, kind of working through discomfort versus is there any pain and we need to really pull back. I thought that was a really uh, important point that you added to the conversation. Um, that that's just like the kind of ongoing monitoring and dialogue that we're, we're following out. But in terms of progressions of loads, like I said, it's, it's benchmark related and then ultimately getting them back to something where we can replicate game load. Um, we know, we know what game loads are. We know, uh, a lot more about what happens in that environment and we want to stress them and, and, and try to challenge them to show that they can handle that. Um, it builds a ton of confidence. Like freezer said that that psychology and components massive. 
Um, when an athlete goes through a, a simulated game before they've joined the group, they got a ton of confidence knowing they can handle uh, whatever's going to come at them now in the next you know week when they when they rejoin the group. So, um, yeah, great, great answer, uh, Joseph. You have a question? Yeah, I'm kind of. Um, Matt just mentioned the psychological standpoint. So just for a little context, uh, working with sprinters, sometimes they they go see the the ATs and um, if like a competition's coming up, they get a little bit nervous and they almost kind of like almost make up like these hamstring, you know, tightness or something going on. I mean, for sprinters, if, you know, hamstring tightness is just, you know, it would drive them crazy. Um, but a lot of times they check them out and they're, they're clear. I mean, do you guys ever deal with any mental barriers where athletes are kind of thinking something's going on and, and it's, you know, it's not really necessarily as bad as they think it is. And, and if so, how do you tackle that? I might, oh, I might jump in real quick. I know, I know freezer has got a ton more experience with this, but I want to give one quick antidote is we've got all the technology in the world to track, you know, whatever it is on and off the ice. We had an athlete with a groin strain and everything that we thought we need to check the box on data wise was checked. And the athlete kept saying it did not feel right. Did not feel right. Um, and there was a lot of pressure to put the athlete back in the lineup. And ultimately there, we ended up with a, a quote unquote revision and the athlete was right all along. It wasn't right. So our system's not bulletproof. And they they, they knew like, like Pete said, they knew um, better than we did at that point. So just, we've had a little experience with that side. Mm. Thoughts Pete. Yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, the, what we, like, I don't see, I see a continuum between the medical side and the strength and performance and injury side. It's a continuum. And that's why I enjoyed my time uh, so much handling all of that stuff. Uh, a lot of times I'd listen to, you know, Scotty and I'd take it back and tell my trainers and they think I'd smart, you know? And so Scotty, I, I, all your mindset made me smart in front of a lot of athletic trainers and vice versa. I'd take them back and forth. But right now I think what we can learn from trainers or uh, therapists is we, we got to handle these things with a biopsychological approach. Uh, and if we don't take into consideration, not just metrics, because most of the, the, the talks this week has been on, you know, steady metrics, you know, and speed development and stuff like that. But in actual fact, there's a, a lot of other things that are going on in that player's uh, life. And so you got to understand it from their point of view. You got to take a, you know, the psychological and the biology all together and put it into your rehab process. And then you're going to get better self-efficacy. You're going to get better motivation and you're going to get to the bottom of the problem, I think. But, you know, like we've all dealt with athletes that have gone through a lot of family problems and that might not be, um, uh, they might come to you with a hamstring strain, but it might be just because they're not sleeping at night because their wife's fooling around on them or, you know, or their contract negotiation. A lot of times you've got to really dig into the problem, not just for the range of motion and strength and things like that, but what else is going on in their life that could be affecting it. But uh, again, you're going to have to always go in with what the athlete has to say about it. So if there's something wrong with it, there is something wrong with it. And you just got to figure it out. You got to be smart enough to figure out, is it psychological, biomechanical, you know, physiological, whatever. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I would just add to that that, you know, there's, um, you know, your brain is constantly interpreting information all the time and it's kind of defining things as threatening or non-threatening all the time. Everything you're doing, it's constantly managing that. And what happens a lot of times with an athlete who's been injured in the past is they start to look at loads uh, intensities, uh, training dynamics, et cetera, competition coming up as a form of threat. And your body starts to exhibit threat 
expression outputs so those outputs could be pain they could be tension they could be anxiety they could be a whole bunch of different things so one of the things to start watching in your athlete is you know what what how are they holding their breath when they're exercising or or are they looking like they're not happy about the situation they're in way prior to them actually having this hamstring tension etc so what is what is their demeanor their their anxiousness level their sleeping that's why we're tracking all these things too around mood dimension their sleep situation etc as they're moving like those things might become more evident to you long before they start complaining to you that their hamstrings are getting tight so as you start to notice those things, you can use things as simple as breathing uh, to dissipate that or reduce that anxiousness and manage some of that threat dynamic or change the way you you tra- run a training session to create maybe some you know novelty or change that that takes them out of the, the sync dynamics that they're in for returning to a, an event. So we, we want to be really aware of that all the time. And I think sometimes we just kind of follow the, you know, that this is how we return to versus is what is the athlete actually expressing or how are they, you know, dealing with this crisis, so to speak. Um, I wanted to pivot over to um, the upper body injury for a second and returning because I always found going back in the ice uh, that to be a very trepidatious period because the lower bodies, you know, like they weren't so far from the ice, but somebody has an AC sprain and they're coming back and they got to go on. I'll remember for the rest of my life, one of my worst circumstances was we had a guy who had an AC sprain. He'd sprained it a few times, finally getting him back. And I'll always remember putting a drill in him tripping on the blue line and falling and me looking at his face and just going, Oh my God, you know, you had that moment. And I'm just curious, like with Mike and, and Pete and, and Matt yourself too, like when you put those upper body injuries back on and you have that sort of leverage point, that pot- potential for falling, they don't even have to run into somebody. What have, what have you done to either mitigate that or manage that as you return them? That's a, that's a good question because I was just, one I wanted to share earlier an interesting point about it could happen for lower and upper body, by the way. Like I, I think one of the ways that you do have to get a hockey player, uh, male or female stronger is that they, they need to learn how to fall. They need to learn how to brace themselves. And um, with our case of an upper body injury, it's, it's how they fall and how they reach out and maybe decelerate themselves and then get themselves into kind of crash position. But it's, it's also, if they get tripped, how can they come up efficiently? Can they, can they explode in it up and get up and continue to move? Right. Um, we've worked on that. We've worked on that, not just on ice KPIs, but I want you to fall. I want you to be like a, you know, a eight U hockey player at camp. And I want you to skate from the blue line. And then through the neutral zone, I want you to slide and I want you to get up. Like we've gone through these foolish little drills, but it's very applicable. I think, um, I had a situation where we had an ACL uh, player with an ACL and it's, I probably had been skating him for a month through his process. So it's month five ACL, ACL, MCL component. And someone on the staff said he should play. And I said, he's not ready. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of his, his performance indicators that, that aren't where they need to be. You know, he needs probably another, another month or another month and a half or something like that. Right. Um, then, it, you know, it just kept this, this back and forth going conversation. And I said to the, when I was on the ice and this person was standing by me and I was skating the injured player 
So I said, uh, I, I told the player, I said, Hey, sit on the bench for me. So he came and sat on the bench and this person's next to me watching him. I said, jump the boards. And, and the player looked at me, he goes, no. And I'm like, no, jump the boards. I want to see if you can hop off quick. He's like, so he looks at me, he looks back, hopped over the boards, made it. Didn't, you know, carry shrug kind of stuck the landing Bambi, you know, and then, and then did, did the drill. And I looked back and I said, he's not ready. He can't jump the boards. He can't land. He, he's not confident in landing. Right. So, so screw the force plate, screw the range of motion, you know, all this stuff. Like he can't do a task that that's mindless, but it's going to happen. Right. And that same player lay on your belly and get up and sprint. Right. Show me that you can explode out of that position and have the available range of motion at your ankle, knee and hip to get in that deep position. Cause he's going to fall. Right. He was a D man. So he's going to be on the ice eventually. So Scotty, I hope that's a long winded answer to your question, but those are the kind of real life situations that you can't forget to plan for and, and rehab for. No, it's a great, that, I love that story. And it's uh, so prophetic in a sense, because you can do all these different tests, but then there's these things that you don't even think about that they need to be able to do that. Uh, um, Pete, any, do you want to, um, bring any context or, uh, uh, you know, story to that, to, to those situations as well. Or, uh, I just had one quick, well, I don't know if it's a quick story, but, uh, the second year I was in the NHL, uh, we had this athlete, uh, his name was Steve chase on. And, uh, Steve was a well-known, uh, defenseman throughout. He played for several teams. We, uh, we got him and, and he had uh, sort of a, a unstable shoulder. Anyways, uh, November, he, uh, we elected, it was coming out so often that uh, we had to have surgery on, on his shoulder and uh, uh, Jimmy Andrews did it. And again, I had, I still have good uh, relationship with Jimmy. Uh, and anyways, he put, I think eight or 10 uh, uh, locks uh, around the shoulder in order to stabilize it. It was an awful lot. I wish I would have taken, kept the x-rays and stuff like that from it. But anyways, uh, Steve was an unrestricted free agent, uh, that particular year. And, uh, uh, so he was going to go and make a lot of money, uh, sign a big, uh, check at the end of the year, if he was able to come back and show himself healthy. So he had a lot of motivation and we talked, JP talked about motivation. His motivation was to come back that season with this, uh, a surgery and play. And uh, as luck would have it, we made the playoffs. Can you believe that the hurricanes playing out of Greensboro, North Carolina, we make the playoffs against Boston Bruins. This guy's talking to me and listen, I did, but the point being is that he said, Pete, I never have to raise my hands above my head playing hockey. I'm playing hockey, not volleyball or something like that. No. I kind of took him for, I'm gullible. You know, if you tell me something, I'm going to believe it. But even with that said, I developed off ice drills. And one of my, I called it Steve Chase on, where he would bounce a ball with his good hand as he was trying to defend me with his bad hand, with his bad arm or his surgical arm. And I would be doing arm bars with him. I'd be digging underneath him and stuff. And he'd have to protect me or keep me off the ball. I don't know if you can realize that, but I thought that was a great one uh, to instill confidence that that's way more demanding that he's what he's going to see on the ice. Point being is he gets back, he has a tremendous playoffs and stuff like that, but he also, he forgot to tell me that a lot of times his game was, you know, skating back into the D zone and then lying out on his gut with his hands above his head in order to block a puck. Well, the first time he did that, that I shit myself. I, I lost uh, body control. But anyways, his arm was stable. He had a fantastic playoffs. But that's a little story. Just like what Mike was talking about on the ice, I would start doing that off ice. And I know that I can multitask the guy so hard that he ain't going to see that stress on the ice. Yeah, that's it. Beautiful. Um, 
With regard to goalies, we haven't talked much about goalies. Um, I'm kind of wondering, uh, what do you guys take a longer um, runway in your viewpoint to those kind of, uh, call it groin, hip, uh, knee types of injuries with goaltenders because of that valgus stress, that hip stress in the in the butterfly position, and and if so, intuitively, what have you tended to do in terms of your return to uh, performance uh, and play um, timelines versus a, a regular skating groin injury or knee injury? Anything? You're, I'm going to tell you one thing that Mike said, and I highly stress this. That, you know, to learn from my mistakes, but always exaggerate the amount of time it takes for an athlete to get back because if they get back early, you both look like superstars. So, uh, and especially with goalies, so, you know, uh, they're the best should be the, and I think we're seeing him even now, uh, the best goalie is going to win the Stanley cup, uh, probably. And so, uh, they're the most athletic. They have to be that most agile. You take an MCL with any other player. I always think it's going to take another three to four weeks for a goaltender to come back off an MCL, uh, compared to other, uh, positions. So yeah, that's all I have to add to that. Uh, Mike, did you have anything or anybody else have anything? I I would just say I think and I, I think it was it came to fruition in one of the conversation one of the presentations yesterday. I think it's really important when you do start to return uh to play with a goaltender that you really sit down with your goalie coach and oh. and really um you know define what are initiation drills. You know, there's a lot of things goaltenders can be doing um before they actually have to get down in the butterfly. So along the lines of what Steph Jervey was talking about with the skaters. You know, they can go out and track pucks along the board, stop them, um, you know, skate standing up and work that. They can work on their hands and their gloves and they can be taking pucks and working on their visual tracking and stuff with before they ever have to actually put the load on the system. So we can get them into on the ice earlier with some of those things and then define how you're going to rebuild that whole butterfly process is it going to be the drop or is it going to be you're going to be down and you're going to work you know you're shifting and stuff so that's a really good conversation to have with your goalie coach and to work through your progressions so they know where you're going and also you know where you're going in terms of what the demands or profile is going to be on that hip or that knee or what have you i think sometimes we just because we don't know a lot about goalies we kind of um you know there's a lot of darkness there in terms of their return um, Vicky had asked a question and I think Matt kind of <laughs> answered short answer. Yes. in the thing, but she said with your gut pro guys who are injured, have you had any challenges with them wanting to see their personal therapist or are set on specific treatment modality that you might not offer or think is best given the context? Um, maybe, you know, Mike can start with that and then Pete, uh, and, and we'll see if there's some different perspectives on that and how you've managed that. Yeah. I mean, you know, Vicky, we, we haven't gone outside the, the wire much at all in my time. And, and um, we have for therapists, if it's a really complicated case and we don't have, if we feel like we don't have the answer, we most certainly bring a resource in and, and explain to the athlete why we'd like to bring this particular person in and a track record. Bill Knowles has helped us on many cases. That's the, the one particular person um, I can share with you. Uh, Rick Celebrini, before he was at the Golden State Warriors, he was in, uh, in, in Vancouver Canucks. He had a small clinic in Vancouver with Alex McKechnie. So we brought Rick in, um, and, and it went really well. I think that built the trust factor with the players to know that 
where where our egos aren't big enough to to say that hey we don't have the answer right now this is complicated and but we're going to help you find the answer so uh, we brought them in and obviously you put some structure and stipulations on on the on the kind of the interaction amongst the team and the organization when you bring someone external out but uh, I think on the the performance side you know players have asked me if it's a complicated case to to reach out to their to their, their strength coach, maybe ask them, you know, just share what's what's going on. And and I have, and, and, and many times it's, it's strength coaches I'm really friendly with. So it's like, you know, we just kind of spitball uh, ideas around and, and kind of share thoughts and things like that. And that's okay. We really haven't never brought anybody in, but I do open those conversations obviously with them and it's been successful. And I think there's also a high level of trust factor in what we do in the gym and what my program is too. So I think that helps. I think that that helps uh, obviously with compliance during the injury, especially in season. Mm -hmm. Pete, what was your experience with external providers that an athlete wanted to work with or, or insisted to work with or expected you to be able to provide certain skills? I know for a while there, the ART trend was a big piece that guys were, you know, you didn't have ART practitioner in house. They were going off and doing that. I think that energy's quelled a little bit, but it still exists out there. So thoughts. Yeah, exactly. I always looked at uh, maybe similar to Mike's too. I always look, and it does happen. It probably continues to happen, but I always looked at it as an opportunity to get better. Uh, like uh, ART, I, I remember reading about that in the 80s when I was at the University of Alberta. And, and then all of a sudden I come to the NHL and I got to take all their courses. Uh, so I was, you know, happier in a pig and shit uh, to be able to do that. Uh, ARP is another one. You know, I got to be honest with you. Have you ever heard of ARP? It's an electrical stim, uh, you know, but uh, at first I thought it was the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life, uh, to be honest with you, because they'd have these athletes putting uh, electrodes on their head and sleeping with them on their uh, feet or whatever uh, sort of thing. But to be honest with you, uh, some of that stuff is still kind of way out there. But I, I use electrical stim with most of my uh, uh, clients now. If I need to stimulate the, you know, the sympathetic nervous system, there's nothing better than using that. You know, if you have VMO detriment, get that ARP on and turn it as size as you can, uh, as they can tolerate. I'm not saying it's a parasympathetic. I'm telling you the sympathetic system. So, uh, I, you know, I took, I, I always, I have time for people that can make me better. And I always looked at whether one, you have to keep on top of your shit because your athletes will, or their agents will, or their wives will, or their girlfriends. So as long as you know what you're talking about, I think that the athlete, uh, one, uh, they appreciate if you're trying to learn what they want to do. Uh, and yeah, it's all how you look at it. If you're offended because somebody's trying to get better than you, you're not going to be very successful, I think, in life or with that particular athlete. Yeah, I think to play off that, um, you know, we've got a group of people who are listening who are not necessarily in the NHL or what have you. But I think it's important to um, develop your own uh, cohort of expertise around you when you're working with athletes that you can tap into uh, who have variable skill sets rather than waiting for the athlete to go out and search for those things. Um, and so that you a have the, uh, a response direction when somebody's interested or curious about something, um, you know, introduce yourself to a lot of those different things. And if you are in, in a league or the league, I think it's important to, you know, cross those bridges before the bridges get crossed by the players. I'll always remember back in the day, uh, and, and maybe it doesn't happen as much now, but I know 
the Toronto Maple Leafs had a uh, you know a therapist and uh, an assistant therapist, and they were very insular in the way they approached things, and they didn't want their players doing anything, and they didn't connect with anybody, and they they could do it all, inclusive of strength and conditioning. And what happened was over time, guys just kind of started to disappear and do their own thing, and they lost control of their space. So you know, effectively, you need to you know these things are important. People want the players want to be working with the the best and the best sources of information and I, I know the guys in this room that we've invited onto the panel are amongst the best at what they do because they enlighten themselves to stuff but if you act like uh, you know put the blinders on and just kind of do your job you'll find yourself looking on the outside very quickly in terms of either your athletes trust in you and or your position with the team at some point um, I'm going to invite uh, the three panelists. Um, what's, you know, each one of you, I'd love to hear one question for the rest of the panel that, you know, has always been of interest to you in terms of return to performance. What, what would you like perspective on before you leave here today? And then I'll finish with your sort of one pearl of wisdom around RTP. So, you know, maybe Pete, do you have a question for the other guys that you'd love, you, you has always kind of been in your craw that you, you would love to hear their perspective on? Uh, the, what, what they consider their key performance indicators, their key number one, key performance indicator. Yeah. Maddie, and then uh, I, can, I can lead off that Maddie, I guess. Um, we, we always go back to kind of what our intake scores are from preseason and kind of historically. So, um, hip range of motion tests, our internal and external uh, hip range of motion tests are critical. Um, our Y balance is you know, important for us, like those those measures. Uh, ankle range of motion uh, and uh, shoulder mobility is another one. And then to we we again we do a, a cervical assessment for range of motion, extension, flexion, rotation, obviously, um, and then compression. So we we always go back to those for any particular particular injury. For in terms of performance. Um, dry land sprint speed and on ice sprint speed. We, we want that to return. Uh, we want that. We do a, we do a six rep test, uh, conditioning test. So we don't, we only, we not only measure speed, but we measure drop off and we measure heart rate. So I do want that to return. And, and then, um, for, for on ice measures and, and then some of the strength measures off ice would be, um, lower body, um, velocity at given loads that we track it within the workout. I mentioned that, um, on my talk, I think on Friday at, on how we look, we, we track, uh, we, we just track that within the workout. It is never really a particular testing day, but we always keep it measured and, and recorded. And then obviously our force plate measures, um, which are, uh, we'll look at landing forces, takeoff forces, asymmetrical forces. Matt. Yeah. Um, I think Mike's got a pretty comprehensive plan there of course uh one a couple things i might add is we look at um uh limb symmetry with respect to lean mass so we're fortunate enough again to have DEXA in-house so we can we can look at that um fairly regularly uh and we will always have uh some baseline data um at our fingertips um of course we'll we'll, we'll do a, a lower limb uh unilateral strength uh we have a an upper body unilateral strength uh, we use jumping as a as a bilateral jump, but with uh, left right asymmetry uh, data. Um, and for us, I would say the biggest part of the end stage is a little bit more of a gross metric, but it's around 
reestablishing um, a, a big portion of their chronic workload. Like for me, it, it really it really checks a lot of boxes. If they can if they can handle a certain amount of work over a certain amount of time, they're fit enough. They're they're whatever the injury might be has clearly tolerated the work. We've exposed them to high accelerations. We've given them sprint work, and so once we've reestablished that that bulk of the uh, the chronic load, we we feel pretty confident that they're in a good place to return from the injury. Um, I guess I might add one piece is. Uh, the, as a KPI is the athlete telling us they want to play. Um, we kind of have a, a little bit of an unwritten rule when the athlete's been checked out and cleared by everybody, they're not going into the lineup until they go and knock on the coach's door and say, I want to play. Um, nobody's told to play, but if, if the player doesn't go and tell the coach he's ready to play, then he's not ready to play. Thank you. Yeah, I would just add to, I mean, the guys have provided some great insights there from my perspective. I mean, one of the, one of my goals when I started in the national hockey league was I wanted, when I finished, I wanted to be able to skate every position in the game, um, in an individual return to performance skate. Um, because for, for me, I think there are objective measures, but there are also, um, you know, benchmarks at each stage of the process that you walk through that you can, you can frame set around what somebody did yesterday and what you expect them to be able to do tomorrow based on what they did yesterday. And it's this incremental gains process that you're going through that you really can't always objectively measure. So I think you have to have your objective measures and your links to those things, but you also have to have this sense that you're walking through the whole process. And whether your organization creates a construct where the handoff of the baton is very synchronized, or you have somebody who does that professionally from A to Z, I think at the professional level, especially, I think it's an imperative. Um, you know, I, I think, you, you know, and Mike talked about this and I know Maddie's more than capable of doing that, but you're, you know, but he'll do a lot of work with Craig and stuff on it as well. But bottom line is if you don't, if you can't walk into that process, it's, it's a little bigger leap to sort of understand the next measure of what success is for that athlete in some sense. And I really like Steph Gervais presentation in our SCAF meetings on Friday around that as well. So, um, Matt, you got a question for the plenary you that's niggled at you that you want to ask? Um, uh, yeah, I probably have a million questions. Um, I'm, I'm curious around the movement screens and how big of a piece that is in the big picture for you guys. Um, is it more than just FMS and Y balance? Um, and sort of maybe can you guys expand on how you're evaluating movement off the ice uh, and where that fits into the big picture. We, um, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Pete. No, go ahead, please, Mike. Um, Maddie, we just, we've kind of created our own when Kevin Neal's was, was, we were together here, like we both spitballed kind of our own movement screen that we wanted to pull together. I, I thought it was kind of foolish that we didn't have any cervical assessment um, because then we had concussion kid concussion patients, if you will, or players that they just couldn't move their head after, you know, and some of them couldn't move their head even in a healthy start to the season. So it's like their head's vulnerable. I, at least I thought it was right. So ours is most certainly a blend of traditional physical therapy, um, physio type range of motion test, manual strength tests, 
pieces of the FMS, you know, um, most specifically is, um, the, uh, um, active straight leg raise and shoulder mobility. And then we've added the Y balance. And so we've kind of constructed it and kind of created this, our own, our own little formula here that I've run with since Kevin's left, but, um, that I really liked at least to tell us a story like the hip range of motion one internal and external and measuring total arc. And if there's any asymmetries, that just makes sense to me. You know what I mean? For our guys. So we've just pulled it together ourselves. Pete, did you want to say yeah, I honestly, uh, I kind of put mine together, too, from what I've seen uh, sort of thing. But mine was more based off of fusionetics. And I got to be honest with you, uh, like when you're doing a squat test with FMS, how often do you have the athlete's shoes on? You can't even see what their toes are doing. You know what I mean? Whether all 10 toes are engaged with the ground when they're doing a squat. I think that's pretty valuable information, uh, to be honest with you, because a poorly rehabbed ankle usually represents that the little toe or the big toe cannot uh, engage with the ground as they're doing a squat. So fusionetics... Yeah, uh, you know, they go over like great toe extension. And, you know, we've talked about ankle mobility. Well, if you have stiffness in your great toe, I don't care who you are. You're not going to have great ankle mobility. It's not going to remain there very long. And if you don't have good ankle mobility or great toe, you're not going to be able to fire those glutes as well as possible. So, you know, when J- Jordan Stahl had that uh, catastrophic type of ankle fracture, I was able to go back and look at all of his fusionetics scores because it takes a long time to put a person through that. But, you know, we test, uh, you know, his great toe extension. We test, you know, like every joint going up and down. That might be overkill, but it certainly gave me a lot more confidence that, we, you know, he had symmetrical uh, recovery uh, from that uh, particular injury, but also too, I think it adds to his performance later on. To be honest, he's never uh, lost another game uh, due to that uh, ankle fracture. So, but that's pro- like that's uh, one of the uh, that's core that's causation or correlation. I I get them mixed up. Uh, I'll take whatever makes me sound better. Uh, but the only thing is, uh, uh, I love that, and also I try to look at my athletes all the time. Like going th- like every time they're in the weight room, I think it's a privilege to be in the weight room with them, and I watch their movement screen. You know how they're moving because they don't have their skates on. They don't usually have their their socks on and stuff like that. So you might think I'm a little bit of a pervert, but that's what I do. I, I try and study their movement all the time. You can also like body language. You can tell we have all these nice metrics about sleep you can usually tell that by just looking at the guy's eyes when he walks in in the morning yeah i think for that maddie um you know movement screening lends itself in in my personal opinion to uh, sort of a group dynamic strategy for getting a real quick snapshot of what you're dealing with in front of you so you've got you know 43 players coming into training camp and you just want to have some red alerts on a few guys i think beyond that for me it's a it's an individual assessment process that you develop as an organization around what you think are important elements of how athletes move in your in your space and i think there's differences between forwards defensemen and goaltenders that you definitely want to parse out um you know one of the things that i talked about in my presentation yesterday and and we'll talk about more when i go down to this scaf p hats one day that we're doing is really the idea of contextual uh breakdowns and assessment is is looking at you know it's one thing to determine somebody's ability to rotate on a fixed pelvis as an example but how do they rotate on that fixed pelvis when their front leg is driven way out in front of them underneath the skating stride and their back leg is fully extended so now we've wound up a bunch of tissue do they still have 
tab-liberated T-spine rotation. You know, so you you need to start looking at more of what's the reality of the true demands on that athlete versus a screen that kind of gives you a snapshot of some gross measures. I think the screen has a place, you know, especially if you're dealing with a big training camp when you've brought your AHL guys in and your NHL guys and you just want to see how's everybody moving today. But beyond that, I think it's overused as an assessment process for sure. Mike? Yeah. Um, What's your big question for the group? My burning question for, for these two gentlemen. Um, what was some of the aha moments during the rehab process as you guys, for the length of time that you guys have been been working in this this space or as it's been a part of um, our, our profession? I, I guess for context, for me, um, we only brought in a PT consultant over the last six years. And, and with our, with our uh, ACL, MCL rehab, he always said, hey, a single leg, broad jump, you shouldn't, that affected size shouldn't be less than 80% difference, you know, in, in distance, you know, to, to, to even think about bringing that player back. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. You know? So something like that, that kind of just jumped out at you during your careers. Matt. And then Pete. Uh, we had a couple where it kind of goes back to what, um, you and Pete were talking about with some, sometimes there's a little bit of a, uh, misunderstanding of the surgeons around what ex- exactly the sport demands. Like we're not working in Toronto and Winnipeg right now. You're in San Jose. I'm in Los Angeles and Pete was in Raleigh, North Carolina. And those doctors aren't really hockey people generally. Um, so I see them clearing certain activities that are more challenging or more stressful on the injury than, you know, potentially putting on the, uh, putting them on the ice would be. Um, we had an athlete with a pretty significant ankle injury that, um, was really slow at the end stages and was struggling with certain, uh, range of motion, um, recovery and, and, uh, couldn't tolerate some of the, the sort of final exercises we wanted to have him go through before, before we skated. And we kind of came to this sort of, uh, thought that, well, maybe, maybe skating would be easier than some of these exercises. And for example, slideboard, slideboard was killing this person, but that was the, that was the last, you know, stage before you could clear them to skate. And we, we put the athlete back in a boot, we put him on the ice and he felt nothing it felt great. And so the whole process was being hung up on this one step and we were, we were really fixated on it. And before we stepped back and, and pivoted and have a, had a real creative conversation around it, we were able to, to get the athlete moving again and in fact, accelerated that, that last step. And that was a, a big aha. And that's kind of part and parcel with why I keep saying like, we want, if we can get them on the ice, safe, let's do it. You know, quit, quit waiting for that moment. Um, you know, there's no, there's no reason to wait if it's going to be safe and, and ultimately it's going to benefit and, and accelerate that, that return. I, I uh, add to that slide board thing because I remember using the slide board a lot uh, back in the day. That was my protocol too, is that they had to be able to do the slide board. Uh, but then I realized, uh, damn it, when you're on the slide board, unless you're an excellent slide boarder, you're eccentrically loading the groin muscles with each stride. Hockey players don't eccentrically load their uh, groin muscles. So that, that was kind of a stick in the, you know, the one aha moment that I've had, because I remember in the seventies and early eighties, we used to do leg extensions all the time. And that the knee extension, you, you know what I mean? And then it, it dropped out of vogue and nobody uh, did it anymore. 
But now, guess what? It's back trending right now. And the reason why I'm telling you that is that a lot of times, if athletes don't feel the muscle that you're wanting to work, it's probably not working. Uh, for example, uh, if you have an athlete that uh, is, and uh, I've witnessed this in pro football, uh, they, they have these guys squatting very soon after their ACL. But yet they'll tell the coach, hey, I don't feel it in my quads. Well, the reason why is because you're actually inhibiting it and they're doing the squatting exercise by using their gastrox and soleus, creating a muscle imbalance. I guess my aha moment is that make sure that the athlete's feeling the muscles uh, that are supposed to be working and not working uh, and that shouldn't be working. So, yeah, um, I don't know if that's interesting, but to me that was. I'd say, Mike, um, one of the minds over time has been this uh, – a predominant sort of desire to use things like MRI, et cetera, to be the definitive measure of some kind of yeah. issue. And, uh, you know, especially around disc, uh, disc injuries, I've seen way too many disc injuries that are being labeled as kind of career ending or uh, un, un, unfixable, et cetera, when the disc was basically the outcome of a whole bunch of other things that weren't being managed or dealt with. And when you started to manage and deal with the, the real, real reason the discs herniations were happening, you got rid of the disc problem and the back problem, but there was too much focus on you've got a disc. And then what happens is the athlete becomes labeled. They become stigmatized around the pain of their back, et cetera. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's an outcome variable of a whole series of different dominoes. Your job is to figure out what domino is driving that thing. And once you do that, you change the whole, um, you know, the whole process. So, it's a, it's a piece of information and that's all it should be really at the end of the day. Thanks. That's great. Fantastic panel boys. Uh, thanks for bringing the noise and thanks everybody for hanging and back. Bye-bye. Thanks Scotty. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. Thanks guys. Thanks everybody. Thanks for joining us today on leave your mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.